Man must at all costs overcome the Earth's gravity and have in reserve the space at least of the solar system. All kinds of danger wait for him on the Earth. We have said a great deal about the advantages of migration into space, but not all can be said or even imagined. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Matt, that was the big KT. It was a KT event. It was. The Konstantin Solkovsky. Oof. Of course, you can buy Solkovsky's rocket equation from the Interplanetary Podcast merch. It's just something that we do. Get it as an iPhone cover. Quite yeah. nice. Jamie. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you very much. And how have you been enjoying space this week? We've had lovely clear skies, haven't We've we? Had beautiful clear skies. I've just got Lots back of... from Amsterdam where I was working and um, I was staring up at the moon in awe over the canals mm. of Amsterdam. Beautiful. Yeah, the sun's getting low in the sky and the moon. You know what I was thinking, Matt, as I was looking up at the Mm -hmm. moon? I was laughing to myself because of the news, and we'll talk more about this later maybe, that China want to send an artificial moon to illuminate cities. Hmm. And I've got many questions. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen that one. You'll have to tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. they said they were going to save hundreds of thousands of... Uh, of of pounds on uh, electricity if they send up an artificial moon satellite, um, but I've I, I, I yeah I'm not sure about it. Uh, maybe sure this it. is the uh, maybe this is their big massive solar farm that they want to put in space as well as part of their their heavy launch vehicle capabilities that hmm. they're working on at the moment. Could I'm well sure be. we won't see that for 20 years, so we'll have plenty of time to talk about that yeah. on pod podcast 1000. Defo, Matt, we've got. We've got a birthday mm. shout out. We do. Sarah Lee Lippincott. 98. 98th birthday today. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. Born on October the 26th, 1920. And she is an, an American astronomer. She's the emeritus astronomer at Swarthmore College mm. and the Sproul Observatory. And uh, yeah, she was a pioneer in. Uh, Binary stars and the search for exoplanets. Oh, yes. Well, happy birthday, Sarah Lee. Happy birthday. What an absolute legend. Total legend. Do you want to hear my space word of the week? Do I? I don't think we did one last week, did we? Didn't we? No. And and, and, and we, I must apologise for last week's massively overlong show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about I was that. Like, I, I, after I'd edited it, it was like, hang on a second, this is, this is like twice as long as I thought it Matt, was. Matt, a short one's a punishment enough. We can't give people anything over an hour. So apologies for that, listeners. If you're saying we didn't do Space Word of the Week, mm-hmm. how many um, hundreds of complaints did we get? Well, it was anything up to a thousand. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> which is the second most amount of complaints we've ever had <laughs> it really is it really is yeah the, the, we've only had more complaints when we didn't warn people that we were going to mention scatological stuff while talking about spacesuits. <laughs> the world hasn't been the same <laughs> no. since so uh no space word of the week here we go interplanetary shock oh well that's very relevant to us yeah yeah i was going to go with interplanetary probe 
but I knew you weren't to be trusted. Way too many euphemisms <laughs> in that. So I've gone with interplanetary shock, which okay. we've obviously had on the show quite a few times, but this is a specific thing. Well, Matt, what is it? The abrupt boundary formed at the front of the plasma cloud, i.e. the coronal mass ejection, and it's moving faster than the rest of the solar wind as it pushes through interplanetary space. Blimey. It's a kind of weird boundary just in front of the coronal mass ejection. And there's lots of spacecraft out there measuring it. Ace, literally putting the ace back into space. Yeah. Wind, stereo A and B, Helios A and B, Ulysses, Cluster, Discover, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have all measured this interplanetary shock. And you can go to interplanetaryshocks.fi or ipshocks.fi if you want to go to the database, which contains more than 2,263 shocks so far. Maybe more when you look look the next time. Wow. I mean, that is nuts, especially because my two worlds of music and space cross over when you said stereo A and stereo B. Well, they're looking at the sun from two different places. Well, of course. Stereo vision. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Bowie song, doesn't it? Stereo vision. Stereo vision for you and me. And we could have the stereo vision song contest. <laughs> Let's do it. Send your remixes in here. This shock wave, it, it can either be fast or it can be slow. Hmm. But intermediate shocks are very rare. And some, some people, might they, they, they might not be observable at all. Oh. And so you can have... You, and the shock can be travelling forward or reverse in a sort of reverse sense. So it's kind of you've got a, a fast forward, a fast reverse, a slow forward, and a slow reverse. And you can you can see the difference from their um, density of the solar wind, the proton plasma temperature, the magnitude of the magnetic field, and the speed of the plasma. Whoa, Matt! I liked it when you said it could be travelling in reverse. In the reverse sense. Could be travelling reverse, like a sort of Michael Jackson moonwalk. I like that. Of an interplanetary shock. <sighs> well, yeah, something I'd never heard of before as well is ion acoustic waves apparently uh, appear in these interplanetary shocks. You haven't heard of that? No. <laughs> so an ion acoustic wave, just like any other acoustic wave, uh, except this time it's through the ions and electrons in a plasma uh, it, it can interact with the electromagnetic field, unlike other acoustic waves. It definitely piqued my interest, that did. I liked it. Well, I like it a lot. I'm going to research it, Matt. That's what I'm going to do. IAWs. Yeah. Ion acoustic waves. Yeah. Interplanetary shock. Have you had a shock? Who needs friends when you can research that? Space mission of the week. Oh, my God. Is this a new section? Go on. No, we've, we've often had space mission of the week. It shows how much I concentrate during the show. <laughs> Is this a new feature? No, we literally do it every week. We, we literally do it every week, Jamie. Okay. You're just not paying attention. It's often the case. Yeah, you're, you're too busy looking at pictures of nebulae. Well, that's just what I do. That's my forte. Remember Mike Moulds, the bus I driver? I do. Yeah, this, this is, was sent in by Mike Moulds, but a different Mike Moulds. Oh. There, can't be too, there can't be too many Mike Moulds, right? Can't be. But this Mike Moulds from Coco in Florida. Nice. He discovered the podcast when uh, John Krause, who is a local hero of his, retweeted when he was on, which is great. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go and listen to it because it's very, very what cool. What are you doing? Yeah. Found out about it and absolutely loved the show. And he thought, have we ever heard of the Aerojet 260? 
Whoa. Well, I haven't, Matt. Had you? Well, I certainly hadn't. And and actually, it may, we may have to go back through our podcast and do some corrections because I have called the European P120C the largest monolithic solid rocket booster ever made. But it's it's absolutely nowhere near, as we'll, as we'll discover from the Aerojet 260. I'm excited about this. Mike grew up in Vandenberg and then moved to the Florida Space Coast. So he's a he's what he calls a long-time missile brat. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He thought that he knew all the missile secrets. But then he, he had some kind of office wager that there wasn't this, this massive hole where there was going to be a big solid rocket booster because he'd never heard of it and, mm. and lost the bet. Uh, so he visited... And it and it's there. There's this completely abandoned hole in Florida, and it's the deepest man-made hole in Florida, and it's got this enormous monolithic Aerojet 260 still in there after test firings. <laughs> they just wow. abandoned it, <laughs> and it's still there. So there's a beautiful website, by the way, called um, Abandoned Florida, and uh, it's it's uh, there's some pictures on that, but. Um, but yeah, Mike sent over his pictures, and, and it's just a spooky place. But just to think that you can just visit this thing. So if you get a chance, go and visit well, it. Well, that's incredible. And, and Mike, I'd like to know: can you can you take tours around this place, or is it literally just you rock up and it's there? I think it sounds like yeah, you just rock up and and you just help yourself. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, and this this facility cost three million dollars, and they had to build a canal. And apparently the canal was a complete environmental catastrophe as they built it <laughs> so they could connect it to the Atlantic to actually get these the casings of these solid ro- rocket boosters up there. Now, here's the thing about the casings of solid rocket boosters. They're normally, you, you normally kind of, with things like the space shuttle, they, the, the massive solid rocket boosters on the space shuttle came in little sections. But those sections are, of course, that they are the cause of the challenger disaster for example mm. ideally you want it monolithic but then you can't really uh, cart these things around and as we'll see this thing was absolutely enormous von braun our mate our mate Werner, he was pushing for um liquid fuels and won the case so eventually they abandoned this project but not before they fired uh three test solid rocket boosters which when when I give you the numbers here, you'll go, what the... I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again. I love a stat. Let's go. These are big stats. Big stat <laughs> of the week. <laughs> These are the big stats of the week. <laughs> so they're twice the size of the solid, solid uh, shuttle boosters. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, Let's go. Hit me. So in, Right, so... They were 260 inches or 6.6 metres in diameter. And bear in mind, the P120 is only 3.4. That's the, that's the European Ariane 6 Vega booster, which, which I thought yeah. was the largest monolithic thing. It's only 3.4, so almost half the size. The Saturn V first stage, by the way, was 10 metres. So this thing was designed, these, these enormous solid rocket boosters were kind of designed to be the, the, the first stage of a Saturn V-style rocket to get men, yeah. men to the moon. That was, that, that was the whole point. But so the Saturn V, 10 metres. So insane. That, I mean, <laughs> every time you read about Saturn V, it is ridiculous. So this solid rocket booster was 18 and a half metres high. The P120 is only 11.7. Still 
pretty massive. And the Saturn V first stage is 42 meters. <laughs> so it's like, what? Um, yes, uh, it, it contains one and a half million kilograms of propellant. Let me just say that again. One and a half. Say that again, yeah. One and a half million kilograms of propellant. That's ten times more than the P120C, but a little bit less than the two point one million kilograms that Saturn V's first stage held. (laughs) My God. Uh, The thrust, and this is just unbelievable. The thrust is seventeen million newtons of thrust. Seventeen point seven million newtons of thrust that's four million pounds of thrust that's a lot of of force four million pounds of force just like what the p120c is only four and a half million (laughs) when i say only i mean that's ridiculous just ridiculous matt i was looking online last night to buy some fireworks yeah how much thrust did Uh, they have and they didn't have that many compared but i mean wow that's a hell of a firework. <laughs> yeah, well, as we're, as we're here, the firework is just ridiculous. So Saturn V, 35 million newtons of, newtons of thrust. Whoa. God. They've all got similar specific impulses, actually. Although, yeah, well, P120C is actually quite, quite a bit more. But the Saturn V and this thruster have got exactly the same uh, specific impulse of 263 seconds. Now, my... God. When it's burning, it's getting through six tons of fuel a second. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Six tons of fuel a second. Yeah, yeah. Saturn V was doing sort of fourteen to twenty tons a second. <laughs> a second. Let me just repeat that. So yeah, that's how many elephants you have to chuck out the back to get a thing moving. Well, Matt, did I ever tell you that I went to Spaceport America and then no, I you've went never told to, me that, Jamie. And then I went to uh, I went to uh, NASA um, at H- in Houston. Yeah, you, you've never really and, told me about uh, this story. I got to stand next to a replica of the Saturn V. Yeah, and it is. I mean, it's it's just it's mind blowing to to sort of see how. I mean, the ambition, the feat, Matt. Mm-hmm. Just to just to even think of doing something that gigantic is pretty ridiculous. This thing, right? So when they lit the fuse on the first test article, SL1, the 260 SL1, mm. you could see the flame in Miami 50 what? kilometers away. <laughs> I'm excited, Matt. I'm confused and excited. But this is just one solid rocket booster that has got... Two million kilograms of force coming out the back. Well, two. Well, two point seven million kilograms of force. Seventeen, seventeen and a half million newtons. Oh, Matt, it's early in the day, and already my head hurts. <laughs> You've got to check that out. So, uh, big shout out to to Mike. Thank you, Mike. That's wicked. Anyone else got any stories like that? We love stuff like that. Yeah, that that is something I'd never seen, never heard of. A bit like the ot rag thing, but yeah, that if you oh god, if I was in Florida, I'd be straight down that hole having a look at that thing. It's a bit like the abandoned barans as well, where you can go to those warehouses and just sort of sneak in and just see these abandoned beautiful spacecraft. It's just crazy. Well, I think I think we need to go for a visit, don't we, Matt? Absolutely. I'll tell you what happened this week. Go on. 
as predicted on last week's show, not not a great prediction. It wasn't like I had to be Mystic Meg or anything, but <laughs> we no. did we did have the fifth launch of in two thousand of eighteen of of an Ariane five. Aha! Yes, uh, and that was of course of Bepi Colombo in your in your favourite place ever, Karoo. And of course, I saw Bepi Colombo, and there's some beautiful pictures of Bepi Colombo taking pictures of its own solar panels unfurled. And I've stood next to that very solar panel unfurled. I'm so jealous. I don't like hearing about it. Well, you know, you did that to me with your. I went to Florida. <laughs> Did I ever... yeah, that's true. Uh, listeners can go read about uh, my little visit to Karoo in this month's space flight. OMG. Where can they get it, Matt? You can get it from all good news agents like WH Smith's. Pop in, get your copy of Space Flight. It, it, uh, it's actually Ariane 5 on the front cover. And you can also order it online from the BIS website, wherever you are in the world. Wait, Matt, is so, this the Interplanetary Podcast's first cover of a, of a magazine? I, I think it must be. We've hit the big time. We've, we have hit the big time. This is, this is it. Hi, Mum. She, she doesn't listen. Doesn't she? No. No, mine doesn't. My mum goes, what a fuss of nonsense. Yeah. My mum always goes, well, we'll never, we'll, I, my theory, my, I think we'll never go to Mars. My mum's very negative Oh, that's about very space. negative. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think we should get Mrs. Russell on the show, have a chat about it. <laughs> we should, actually. It would be Brilliant. actually very, very, it would be very, should very Should we get our mums indeed. on the show? Should we do a mum, a mum <laughs> podcast? <laughs> we should. <laughs> space mum oh, of should, the uh, week. Maybe we'll invite them down to the 150th show. That would be good. Anyway, this Ariane 5, uh-huh. it's launched Bepi Colombo on its seven-year voyage to Mercury. It's so hard to get to Mercury. We talked about this with the Solar Parker, the Parker Solar we have. Probe, about how, how much harder it is to get to the inner solar system than it is to get to the outer solar system. Yeah. Because you've, got to, you've just got to shed off all that Earth speed to sort of make your way in. It's it's a bizarre, isn't it? But uh, yeah, so the the uh, Ariane five ECA, which is the current version of the Ariane five that's flying at the moment, it, it had to be it uh, wasn't modified, but they had to do loads and loads of work to make sure that it could get up to these particular speeds. It's the first time it's ever been used for Earth escape, um, because the previous Earth escape mission was. A five G plus version of Ariane five. Where I actually don't know anything about that one, but I do know about the ECA. But they, um, I'll tell you about it later. Good. If we, if we, maybe you can write about it on the blog. Easy. <laughs> so it meant that they had to use the full spec of the Vulcan two uh, rocket engine, which is an, which had an extra two point two five percent more power than before um, for the ECA version, and it took thirty Ariane Group engineers. Two years to actually make sure that all the verifications were done for this particular launch. It's an incredibly complicated God, now that's, yeah, mission. That's an undertaking. Yeah, so it had to get to thirty nine thousand or thirty nine and a half thousand kilometers an hour, which is over four thousand kilometers an hour, more than usual for a transfer orbit to geostationary which is what Ariane 5 Jeez. normally does. That's quick. So, yeah, it was going bare quick, as my kids would say. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, uh, also, Europe have uh, finished qualification of their Vinci engine, named after Da Vinci, of course. Oh, yeah. Which is going to be used on Ariane 6 upper stage. And it was the 148th test of this thing, and it's never flown. 
it's just been used and it's going to replace it's going to replace the engine that's in Ariane 5 which saw its 141st nominal firing to put Bepi Colombo into space that's how reliable the HM7B is that is reliable that is reliable 141 times it's flown absolutely perfectly into space but this new engine is capable of restarting four times although they've tested it for loads more refirings which means you can sort of fly up into space and put things exactly where you want it. So it makes Ariane 6 loads more versatile. And it's ridiculous. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, well done. Human beings, Matt, yeah. are really clever, yeah. some of them. So well done, well done, ESA, for doing A, the Bepi Colombo launch so brilliantly and for getting your Vinci engine up and running. Tip of the cap, ESA. And they've just finished the European service module, so they're just about to deliver that to NASA which is, of course, a part of the okay. uh, part of the SLS and Orion mission to the moon. It's a massively uh-huh. important part of the Orion spacecraft, and we're, we're, it basically supplies the, the Orion spacecraft with electricity, propulsion, thermal control, air and water. And it's based on the old ATVs that we stood inside when we, when we visited Cologne. That's right. We did. Yes. Incredible. November the 16th, uh, the press are invited to meet Jim Bridenstine, and uh, ESA's Director General, Jan Werner, uh, to uh, talk about it. Cool. Oh, I can't wait for that. Talking of Jim Bridenstine, there's, uh, I've just watched the Jim Bridenstine and Nick Haig interview on NASA TV. And that, how was it? It's brilliant. So if you want to get some kind of feeling about how terrifying <laughs> being in a Soyuz abort is, then watch that. Of course, Nick Hague's super cool, and he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's he talks about the 30 seconds you're inside the fairing so that you can't see out the windows. Mm. And he said that that was pretty terrifying. Well, he didn't say terrifying because he, he would never admit to that. He was just saying, you know, that's, no. that's the kind of longest 30 seconds of the, <laughs> of the flight. Of course. By longest 30 seconds, I'm taking that as terrifying. Uh, yeah. Then he then you go through six point seven Gs for twenty seconds as as the as the capsule starts slowing down through the atmosphere. But after that, you're just doing a, a normal landing. Uh, uh, by the way, it, during all this definitely panic, not normal after yeah. that. <laughs> during all this panic, of course, where everything's going wrong and and it's all you're getting knocked about and there's red lights and and horns and everything. Yeah. Everyone's staying calm and of course. Nick Haig is doing all of this in Russian. It's just, it's just insane. Yeah, insane. Well, insane, I mean, these guys are brave people. Just very, very well trained. And that. Oh, and brave. And just, you know, general, general bang outs, as we've said before. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Remember, we were talking about Hubble and how they had a more advanced gyro that they tried to spin up and it wasn't quite working. And so, they, yes. so they've like they shut it down, and they were going to try again. They have tried again with that advanced gyro, and by, oh. and by using Hubble to sort of do a load of maneuvers and sort of jolt around, they've <laughs> flown it around a bit, and it's dislodged a blockage within the gyro, and they've managed to spin up that advanced gyro. So uh, Hubble's back with having two gyros, and has kept one off for for a spare. So he's got the three gyros. And and we're we're all happy again. So Hubble's Hubble's in good shape. Ah, we can relax. You can kind of relax. I love Hubble. I had a little chat with David Baker last week, just after the last show came out. Big DB, how's he doing? He's doing great. Do you want to do you want to have a listen to to my little chat? I'd love to have a listen. 
Let's a good day. Roll it. I'm joined yet again for our monthly chat with David Baker. How are you, David? I'm just fine, Matt, and I hope our listeners are too. Great to be with you again. This month, we've had a bit of a, a roller coaster space month. Well, one of the most interesting things is the fact that the new NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine, who was questioned by some before he was appointed on a very narrow vote of approval in Congress, um, it, it, his, his approach toward how he sees NASA in the future is very much contrary to how we thought the Trump administration was pointing the agency when it came to power 18 months ago. And the interesting fact is that he's now a very ardent supporter of climate change research. And Congress, incensed over the Trump administration's elimination of funds for climate change research satellites and spacecraft, Congress has reinserted those, and with the full blessing of Bridenstine. And this has rather caught people unawares, because they thought and assumed he would follow the mantra of the Trump administration, and quite the opposite. He's also very hot on international cooperation, and he was quite incensed by the inability of the head of Roscosmos to attend the biggest gathering of um, space agencies, space companies, aerospace organizations, manufacturers, contractors. Every year, the International Astronautical Congress meets in a major city in the world. Uh, and this year, it, it was Bremen at the beginning of October. And um, surprisingly, because of the embargoes placed on trade and certain individuals in Russia, uh, Rogozin, the head of Roscosmos, was prevented from getting a visa to go to Bremen simply because the fact that Rogozin had been a member of the Putin administration before he became head of Roscosmos, and he is prevented from entering a European country because of that. And Bridenstine apparently, reportedly, was incensed about this and has sought Rogozin out specifically to try to build bridges back and to lift the space program out of this political mess we're getting into with regard to tit-for-tat reciprocations. He's also very keen and concerned to pull China further toward the international partnerships for space station and talk with them about participation in the next major ISS Mark II, essentially, which is the Lunar Orbit Gateway that's being planned with the international partners beginning with launches in the next two to three years. So, Bridenstine is turning out to be quite a supporter of all those good things that NASA always stood for, and really is confounding the critics who thought he would simply follow the Trump mantra. He's doing quite the reverse. So, do Rogozin and uh, Bridenstine have quite a close relationship? I, I know that they've, they've met up quite recently, and I can't, I can't remember quite where that was. Well, that meeting was held because he was unable to, because Rogozin was unable to attend the IAC, and it, it seems as though as though once <laughs> it, it's really quite quite interesting because previously NASA administrators have rode against the tide of flow from the White House when previously they had thought to be in the lap of the president, and here we have the same thing, but. Rogozin and Bridenstine have had communication. Um, I think it's on a professional level, but both, I think, recognize, well, certainly on the NASA side, 
they recognize that you know this that this, this has got to stop that you can't have politicians putting red rings around certain individuals and countries when there's a bigger picture that's, that endures far beyond the tenure of a single administration, even the two-term of a presidency. We're now investing in programs that outlive the preferences of a single incumbent, whether he serves one or two terms. And I think this is very good news indeed. And I think a lot of people have been surprised at that, but that's the way it's going. Yeah, that that really is interesting. Yeah, that that it's 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 trying to stretch out the uh, the influence and take away politics. I suppose mm. in in some in some respects. Yeah. I I, I uh, liked your phrase you used uh, before we were on air about catching the NASA flu. Is that a phrase that gets used often about administrators? <laughs> well, it is really quite. Remarkable, um, because Weidenstein comes from outside and yet is very technologically savvy. And I think that was the reason. I personally don't think a, well, a, a born-again space advocate um, is, is anything bad, but I don't think it's necessarily good to choose an administrator from the ranks of the converted <laughs> because you know you, you you need a cynical overview and and you need a pragmatic um individual who who is in charge of that of connecting um a government agency with White House policy and the wishes of Congress. So the administrator is really the touchstone for those three entities, the agency itself, the White House and a Congress. And so you really do need a politico-savvy individual who can stand his own, who, who can talk the talk in terms of what Congress likes to hear, and knows the language and the way things can, can get done. Um, and I think under the Obama regime, that's something we, we lacked, and which is why it really fell to pieces when the Constellation Program was cancelled in April 2010. Um, but what we've got now is something that's very good. And it's needed when we come to times of potential crisis. And of course, this month again, we've had the problem with the Soyuz mm. and, and the spacecraft MS-10 and, and, and that and its possible consequences on the long-term uh, occupation of the space station. Is MS-10 symptomatic of um, basically Roscosmos running out of money and cutting corners? Well, I think that's becoming self-evident. And I think the real problem here is the fact that the Russian government, the Russian economy, is suffering badly under sanctions imposed by Western politicians who disapprove of the way the country is being run internally. Um, I say that with somewhat pithy cynicism because, again, I hate to see the intrusion of politics getting in the midst of ventures which can bring people together rather than drive them apart. And if you, if, if you drill right down to Roscosmos, yes, it's in a very parlous state economically. And why is that? It is largely because the Russian economy is being hit extremely hard by sanctions. People will either approve or disapprove of that, depending on their disposition of views regarding the behavior of Russia on the international scene or the fact that... Um, that, that, that individuals may feel that it's either justified or unjustified. I make no comment on that whatsoever. Um, but it is certainly a fact, there's no doubt about it, that um, 
for a country which has a relatively low population. The population of Russia is little more than twice that of the UK. Um, its defense budget is actually less than ours now. Um, and it's clutching at straws. It's pulling in from a lot of invested technology developments. We're seeing this across the whole of the defense industry infrastructure, which is far more important to the progression of their space activities than it is in any other country in the world, because there's always been this close connection between the Ministry of Defense and their space program um, right out there in, in, in the non-military parts of it as well. Every single directive uh, authorizing the state to pursue a particular objective in space has always had to be sanctioned by the appropriate military authority. And that goes right the way back to the, the days of the Soviet Union. Back in the 1960s, there was a military directive for everything, and there still is. So, so we're seeing already we're seeing already in the procurement process that uh, there is a cutback in terms of procurement from industry in military aviation within the space program as well. And so this is a direct consequence both of the, of the inability of the Russian state to ride out these sanctions um, and also being hurt by individuals being prevented from traveling as well. So there's, there's a great net been thrown over Russia um, economically, digitally, and uh, politically. And this is the consequence for it because they still they still hold their space program up to be a flagship banner of what Russia stands for as a proud and independent nation. Uh, so, yes, it is having its consequence. And this is why we really do need to maintain a very, very close monitoring of just what is going on with regard to these technical failures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm always struck by the fact that <laughs> since 2011, we've been relying on a technology that's from the 50s and the 60s, and we've got no dissimilar redundancy. I think that's the word that Jim, Jim Bridenstine used to yeah, get, to get yeah, up yeah. to the International Space Station. And, of course, we are yeah. in a situation now where if we don't get the Soyuz flying soon, we might have to fly the space station from the ground. Is that right, for the first time in 18 years? Yes, the, the actual diary of events on this is that the next progress vehicle was to have been launched on the 31st of this month, the 31st of October. That is not now going to happen. All the Soyuz launch vehicles are grounded. Um, the current crew were to have uh, returned on the 13th of December. Um, the next crew were, or the crew that should have been launched on MS-10 were to be the bridging crew until the follow-on permanent expedition crew seven days later on the 20th of December. Um, and that's the way it would have gone forward. The Soyuz spacecraft is certified for 200 days in space, and that at a stretch could take you into January. So there is the possibility of that um, slight extension. So here we are coming into November. Uh, we've got two solid months, essentially. Bridenstine himself um, is quietly confident that it will be perfectly acceptable to get the next crew launched up before this current crew return. Um, I tend toward that view myself. Um, 
this is a big deal, but it's not that big to ground everything across the period that is critical for maintaining a human presence on board the ISS. And it's interesting that with the Progress tanker vehicle obviously next off the pad when clearance is given, that will be also serving not only the resupply requirement, uh, which is not critical because there's oodles of supplies on the ISS, particularly with the reduced crew Mm. level aboard the station, there's only half the normal number there, um, the, uh, that flight will also serve to re-qualify the Soyuz launch vehicle. Uh, they will inevitably, as the Russians always do, have to fly an unmanned vehicle of the same type in order to demonstrate that they've solved the problem and then launch the one after that with a crew. So we're in line to have that happen, and those could happen in relatively rapid succession. Um, I don't think it's panic time at all. Um, and, and while there is still uncertainty as to exactly what has gone wrong um, in the open caucus of information, I think that, that um, there's, there's probably going to be a fairly rapid turnaround on this. But there have been questions asked as to whether the quality of workmanship is declining. And indeed, in some... Um, more mischievous reporting as to whether there's actually sabotage going on here because it follows on concerns. There's already a commission underway looking at the problem with this hole in the spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, MS-9 followed by MS-10 both have criminal investigations <laughs> around them, don't yes. they? So that's, yes, that... yes, they do. <laughs> but, but, yeah, we shouldn't put too much noise around those words because, in fact, that's quite normal in the Russian system. Right, Okay. It's, it's just that it's picked up in the translation as being, oh, uh, you know, we in the West think, think, you know, there's evidence for malfeasance, but uh, it is actually not unusual to have that. Someone was saying that perhaps uh, this accident um, actually makes it harder for SpaceX and Boeing and their to get those human rated. That in actual fact, it's kind of cast a light on the dangers of space flight and that perhaps the, the knock-on effect of, uh, of this accident will make it harder for them. Do you, th- do you, do you buy that or is that something that... Uh... No, I, I don't buy in, into that one bit. We, we live in the area... I'm not talking about society in general. Um, we cannot get that things done quickly these days in the world of technology simply because we live in a risk-averse culture within the technology and the operational deployment of these systems themselves. Um, I think everybody's pretty aware within the industry that spaceflight is dangerous, that these vehicles can go wrong, seriously wrong. The program of qualification is laid out years in advance and is meticulously unfolding vehicle by vehicle with regard to Dragon and the CST-100. Um, while it gives everybody an awareness that their their cautionary concerns are valid, I don't think it's going to do anything to either delay. I don't think it's going to give them the hurry up either, because I think we've we've learned lessons where that has gone awry all the way from Apollo through to the shuttle where there has been pressure to fly irrespective of potential dangers and that's caught us out on each occasion. I think that's a pretty enshrined lessons learned. But I, I don't think you do react in this way in these 
programs which are laid out that this is a whole series of tests and 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 while the the overall headlines may be oh yes they're going to try to launch next year oh but is this going to make them good i mean that that really i don't think applies in 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 these kind of industries if there was any change in the requirements for emergency escape systems in either of those two vehicles it would set them back years because you'd have to go through huge redesign requalification it's adequate it's it's completely adequate um, what exists for launch escape in the Dragon, and the demonstration um, abort procedures, demonstration of abort um, uh, qualification is is pretty much enshrined. So I no, I I just don't think it it works that way in the industry. Uh, well, uh, one one other question then it is once uh, Boeing and SpaceX start flying, and you've got I suppose you've got that redundancy there. How long? Oh, yes, yes. How long do you think um, Soyuz will carry on flying? I mean, the, we are talking about a pretty old piece of technology, or yeah. is it just the fact that yeah. it's just so superb at what it does that it will just carry on flying for for, for a really long time? And I, I can't work that out at all. Well, essentially, it's because there's been lack of investment. the The Russian space program would have died. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, had it not be for, been for the Clinton administration, who had put virtually a stop work order on the International Space Station. I think people forget how close we came to the whole program being abandoned when Congress had consistently, over successive years, funded only a half to two-thirds of the money requested and required to get the ISS up and operational. Um, I think uh, when you look at what the Russians have been able to achieve, it is only because of the international cooperation they have had. And they've been limping along, unable to find the resources to develop new vehicles. We've had the Clipper concept. We've had constant projections and presentations at at these congresses for uh, astronautical gatherings um, uh, about up graded versions and completely different types of spacecraft and and there are as many presentations as as there are room for studies but but russia just has not been able to find the money to do this they have a history and 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 a record of consistently retaining equipment um that probably in the west will be retired and replaced but it is not within the Russian mindset to simply throw anything away um, and to discard it simply because it is old. Um, consistently, this spacecraft has proved to be the most reliable of any spacecraft um, since the Gemini program, oh, actually, yeah. in the United States. And, and out of these hundreds of vehicles, hundreds and hundreds of Progress and Soyuz vehicles of the same type, and of course we're talking about two things here, the Soyuz launcher and the Soyuz spacecraft. Um, and, and those two, uh, each of them do need significant upgrades now uh, because they're talking to and interfacing with very, very advanced systems um, that they are not the equal of in these international programs. But where Russia goes after it is no longer able to charge almost $70 million per seat for Soyuz rides to the international partners, and that falls off the cliff at the end of next year um, and we're looking to have those commercial carriers begin delivering crews from US soil before the end of next year um, then 
this is the $64,000 question as to what Russia is going to do. And it's not at all certain, I think. It's, it, it, it's very, very open still as to the commitment they will have uh, to the ISS. They've already reduced the number of, of crews that they're sending because of cost. And just as we have invited them in as a, as, as a community of international space station partners to the Gateway program, will they have the resources to do that? Is it in our interests to maintain sanctions that may be, be politically desired by certain um, parliamentarians in various countries in the West? Is this really in our interest? Because you know, where is this leading us? And, and so it's part of a very, very much bigger question. But the reason they have not been able to replace it is money. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> here's a, <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm, I think I'm going to be quite naughty now and say if uh, the next progress launch was to be a failure, would that be, I mean, presumably that really would put the whole thing into a critical condition. If it was a launch vehicle failure, yes, it would. If it was a progress tanker failure unique to that design, it wouldn't. Um, but, yes, I, I, I think we're running out of, of, of goodwill. Mm. I, I was, goodwill, I feel, um, exists now still, and it's recognized that these things can fail, these things can happen. We've seen that in programs across all the space sailing nations. Everybody has failures. And it's always more noticeable when it's involving humans. The fact that it was a highly successful abort, we should not discount and mm. forget as well. The system might be old, but it was an automatic abort. It did not require the crew to 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 um, initiate anything. So this is, the actual abort sensors were, were right on and, and worked effectively. But I think this is probably the last chance saloon. And I think if something does happen again, um, that would be, a, it, it would be very difficult to see that it could continue on that basis. And in which case, if there was no ability, then this crew would have to come back. The station would have to be left unmanned. And it could operate for years unmanned. There's no problem at all. Uh, it's completely capable of doing that. Um, in fact, a huge amount of the operation of the station is commanded from the ground anyway. Uh, but yes, it could very, very well be very effectively. But uh, there's going to be such a short gap until hopefully the commercial providers can fill this gap. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, at least half the experiments would stop if it was unmanned, though. <laughs> presumably more uh, than uh, half would uh, yeah yeah but the survivability of the station of the station to be reawakened and opened again is far greater than it was for instance of skylab uh when efforts were being thought then because there was a plan of course to have the shuttle dock with skylab and to reactivate it um and and that's of of great interest uh, to look back to and compare. And Space Station was designed specifically with the contingency expectation that it may have to experience periods when it was unmanned. This was what the, the Russians brought a lot of their studies when they had shut down Salyut stations and Mir stations, and, and they brought a lot of really solid information was, which was completely new to us. Nobody really understood exactly what happened to vehicles that were designed to carry people and support occupants if they had to be put into quiescent mode 
um, and then be reawakened, as it were, for habitation, resumed habitation. This was part of the design of the International Space Station, to be able to do that, but much, much, much more efficiently than the older generation, Salyut and Mir, had been able to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that, I mean that's, uh, that rounds that off quite nicely with the uh, Russians uh, bringing in their, their expertise, which, of course, is, is something that we want, isn't it, international cooperation. So what else, what else yeah. have you been, what else have you up to and what else is coming up, just to wrap up, David? Well, I'd, I'd just like to say that in next month's space flight, we will be concentrating on this 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions, um, particularly with Apollo 8. Um, I will be looking at, as we look at 50 years on from the first flight of humans to orbit the moon, I'm going to be using that as the launch pad, <laughs> if I may say it that way, um, to look at all of the various elements of the Lunar Gateway. There's going to be a full description of what all the hardware elements are, when they're going to be launched, and how it will all come together. And it is based on the assumption that the Russians will be part of that, but if they're not, it could still proceed anyway. And who knows? China may be the new Russia in the Lunar Orbit Gateway. Ooh, now that would be exciting, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, Indeed. Yeah. I, 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 well, actually, I was. That was what was one question I was going to ask. Is China obviously their? <laughs> am, am I right in saying their human launch vehicle at the, is currently based on the Soyuz? Is that right? Or am I wrong? Well, there's a there was a lot of design cooperation, and we should say that the Russians are being sought after. They're the go-to consultants for India who is received whose candidates for the Russian uh, for India's human spaceflight mission which it plans in two or three years time um, that is being supported by the Russians now and the Indians are paying the Russians to help them both in crew selection and training as well as with some of the studies into the design of their vehicle so the Russians have cooperated with the Chinese, and there was certainly a few years, well, quite a few years ago, quite a considerable exchange in the basic um, schematic layout, if you will, of the configuration of their spacecraft was based on on the Soyuz template, yes. Uh, thanks very yeah. much, David. Okay. Well, thank you, Matt. Brilliant, as always. He really is into uh, space collaboration. He is. And trying to get all nations to become together and... And be collaborative, help each other out, and not let global politics get in the way. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of with him on that. I've, I wish it was that simple. Very much. I wish so. it was that simple. Yeah, it's not, is it? It's really difficult, isn't it? Let's face it. Yeah. Do you want to hear my space fact of the week, which is all about collaboration, Matt? If this doesn't blow my mind, I'm leaving. There's a few things that will blow your mind. Here we go. I saw a little picture which is from one of my favourite websites, historicspacecraft.com. Really good graphics of spacecraft and space missions and stuff. And it's a, uh -huh. it's a great site. It's a really good site. But uh, I saw one picture that, uh, that piqued my interest, and, uh, and it's a picture of a day in 2011, 26th of February, uh -huh. where there was a lot of international collaboration going on on the International Space Station. So I thought it was just worth oh. finishing up on that. So it's all... Yeah, what was it? Europe, Japan, America and Russia all had spacecraft attached to the International Space Station at the time. Blimey. So the Johannes Kepler, or ATV-2, was up, uh -huh. was on there. 
STS-133, the the final mission of uh, Discovery Space Shuttle, was attacked. Yeah. Was attached. The Kunotori Two HDV Two, the Japanese H Two, was attached. Right. Then you had a Soyuz TMA Twenty. Yeah. Which had arrived in December, and a Soyuz TMA One, which had arrived in October, and also a Progress vehicle. So you had. A whole, That's ridiculous. Yeah, so all of those were attached to the International Space Station. Discovery was dropping off the Leonardo da Vinci. Matt, what kind of meal would, would, would everyone have had on the, uh, on the ISS that night? I think they would have had fusion food, maybe a curry. Good. Or, yeah. or maybe a nice Chinese. Who doesn't like a curry, Matt? Listeners, if you don't like a curry, write in. If you don't like a curry, unsubscribe. You're not welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. We need all the numbers we can get. Welcome back. It might be our only listener, might some subscribe. That was so annoying. <laughs> uh, at least we know it won't be our mums. Exactly. The Leonardo got left behind as the as a as a uh, permanent module on the space station oh. after flying seven different shuttle missions as a multi-purpose logistics module in the shuttle. But anyway, uh uh, the Kepler, Johannes Kepler, was also used to boost the ISS up from 220 miles to 248 miles. So quite a bit of... Okay. So that, that was pretty cool. So the astronauts on board, there's some really famous names in here, and even someone I've met. So on board was Scott Kelly. Tick. <laughs> Alexandra Kaleri. Tick. Oleg Skripochka. Tick. Dmitry Kondratyev. Ah, Dmitry, yes, tick. And here's, uh, here's my mate, Katie Coleman. Ah, oh, yes, tick. There's a nice picture of Katie Coleman with George. It's good. Paolo Nespoli, one of the greatest European astronauts. Love him, tick. And they were joined by that, their Expedition 26, by the way, and they were joined by the crew of STS-133, which is another six people. So there was uh-huh. 12 people on board when all this was happening. Bloody they hell. were joined by Alvin Drew, Right. Nicole Stott, who I was reading one of her articles in Room recently. She's an artist. Uh-huh. Eric Bow. Yeah. Stephen Lindsay. Welcome. Michael Barrett. Hello. And it was supposed to be Tim Copra, who's uh, a bit of a bang out, but it was Steve Bowen who replaced him because Tim Copra crashed his bicycle <laughs> oh, <laughs> about a month before. Yeah, silly. But my You'd be gutted, wouldn't you? But my two favourite additions to that crew were Robonaut mm-hmm. 2. He went up on that as well. That's where Robonaut 2 became a uh, yeah. crew member of the ISS. Love uh, Robonaut. And also an action figure of William Shakespeare. <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Robonaut to be or not to be. I like that. See what I've done there? <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know, on that brilliant joke, Jamie, we should leave the listeners. Yeah. Only to remind We should do, shouldn't we? If you've listened to this podcast completely by accident, then don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. And What else can they do? You could also go, I tell you what, these struggling chaps, they didn't, they didn't have any adverts on the show. How, how are they doing it? Well, we're doing it through Patreon. We are doing it through your help. We don't want no nasty corporations' help. We want our lovely listeners' help. So you can go to www.interplanetary.org 
I think you can just go to Patreon forward slash interplanetary if you want to check that out hey matt i'll tell you what if i know us i bet there's some bloody perks from being a patron <laughs> oh big time absolutely big yeah. time what are you talking like extra content chance to be involved in the show that kind of thing uh, you can you can you can become a producer on the show if you're where do i sign you oh yeah you just told us yeah patreon.com forward slash interplanetary See you there. Please join us. Join us. Join us. Jamie, anything else you want to say to these podcasts? If you haven't tried a cinnamon and raisin bagel, give it a go. I had one for breakfast and I must say, whilst it probably wasn't the healthiest breakfast because I slathered it in butter, <laughs> it was really it was a really enjoyable moment of my day. Matt, have you got anything to add? No, I had a really disappointing Weetabix this morning for my breakfast, but you know, so, oh. sometimes you, you've got to go with your, you know, your boring staples. I'll send you a bagel. Uh, bye-bye, Spodcats. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.